This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi, and I'm not alone in studio. I'm with Zwalani Tulo, Tracy Boomgard, and Neto Chimani. A few top stories on Africa Digest at this hour: Trump lords America's economy at WEF. Doctors in the DRC are on strike. Nigeria's Supreme Court ruling sparks protests. And in economics news, Africa-UK investment conference continues in London. And lastly in sport, South African cricketer Kajis Rabada saddened uh, by his ban. But right now, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here's Zwalani Tullo with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The trial of seven Cameroonian soldiers accused of participating in the killing of two women and two children has reportedly begun behind closed doors. The soldiers were arrested after a video of the incident surfaced on social media in July 2018. The shaky footage showed two women, one with an infant strapped to her back, being led across a patch of dusty scrubland by uninf- by un by uniformed men, rather, who accused them of belonging to the Nigerian militant group Boko Haram. Moments later, two of the men stepped back, leveled their rifles and fired a series of rounds into the victims. Government and army officials initially dismissed the video as fake news meant to tarnish the government's image, but later announced arrests in the case. The sources said the trial began on Monday in a court in Yaoundé, the capital of the West African country. The South African Human Rights Commission, together with the family of Inokum Bianzi, have jumped over the main gate of the Nyati Bush campsite to gain access to it. This after they were denied entry into the facility earlier in the day to conduct an investigation. A 13-year-old Mbianzi drowned in the Crocodile River at a campsite in the northwest province last week. The Parktown Boys High School learner was attending a grade 8 orientation camp at the facility when he was swept away by the river. SAHRC Gauteng manager Buang Jones says they want the police to issue a warrant of arrest for the owner. Um, the owner has not um, granted us access. The gate is still locked. Uh, we are told by Marilis, who is supposedly the manager here, that the owner is consulting with his lawyers. And we've asked the SAPS to consider issuing a warrant of arrest because they have obstructed and interfered with our lawful investigations as a uh, Chapter 9 body. And the conduct of the owner... Uh, uh, amounts to, to a criminal offence when you, you uh, have a proper reading of our act. A senior U.S. State Department official has warned against potential destabilization in the Central African Republic ahead of presidential elections scheduled for December. On his first visit to the country, the U.S. Assistant Secretary for African Affairs, Tibor Nagy, said he wanted to know more about the Russian presence there in their formal and informal capacities. He had earlier told reporters that the U.S. believed more than 700 Russian soldiers were deployed in CAR. Teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg says there is no time to waste in finding technological solutions to the current environmental problems. Thunberg was addressing delegates at the World Economic Forum in Davos in Switzerland. Earlier, U.S. President Donald Trump said technological solutions would overcome the environmental problems, a view which is in stark contrast of the one that Thunberg has presented. Environmental destruction is topping the agenda of the summit. Thunberg says now is the perfect time to act. All the solutions are obviously not available within today's societies, nor do we have the time to wait for new technological solutions to become available to start drastically reducing our emissions. So of course the transition isn't going to be 
easy. It will be hard, and unless we start facing this now, together with all cards on the table, we won't be able to solve this in time. And finally, Russian airports have stepped up screening of travellers arriving from China to try to identify people infected with the new coronavirus. The World Health Organization says the outbreak, which has already killed six people, is likely to spread. Russia's consumer health regulator says a testing system to diagnose the new coronavirus has already been developed and that labs will start receiving it by the end of the week. Regional authorities have also been briefed on measures they need to take to reduce the risk of an epidemic. I'll be back with headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The 50th World Economic Forum is underway in the Swiss city of Davos with an agenda that is focused heavily on climate change. The four-day annual gathering of some of the world's top political and business leaders in the Swiss Alps is seeking to tackle head-on the dangers of climate change to both the environment and the economy from global warming. In his keynote address, hours before his uh, impeachment trial opens at the Senate in Washington, D.C., U.S. President Donald Trump lauded the U.S. economy. He said America's economic turnaround had been nothing short of spectacular. Since my election, America has gained over 7 million jobs, a number unthinkable. I wouldn't say it, I wouldn't talk about it, but that was a number that I had in mind. The projection was 2 million, we did 7. More than three times the government's own projections. The unemployment rate is now less than 3.5%, and at 3.5%, That's a number that is the lowest in more than 50 years. The average unemployment rate for my administration is the lowest for any U.S. president in recorded history. We started off with reasonably high rate. For the first time in decades, we are no longer simply concentrating wealth in the hands of a few. We're concentrating and creating the most inclusive economy ever to exist. We are lifting up Americans of every race, color, religion, and creed. Unemployment rates among African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans have all reached record lows. African American youth unemployment has reached the lowest it's ever been in the history of our country. African American poverty has plummeted to the lowest rate ever recorded. The unemployment rate for women reached the lowest level since 1953, and women now comprise a majority of the American workforce. That's for the first time. The unemployment rate for veterans has dropped to a record low. The unemployment rate for disabled Americans has reached an all-time record low. Workers without a high school diploma have achieved the lowest unemployment rate recorded in U.S. history. Wages are rising across the board, and those at the bottom of the income ladder are enjoying the percentage by far largest gains. Workers' wages are now growing faster than management wages. Earnings growth for the bottom 10 percent is outpacing the top 10 percent, something that has not happened. That was U.S. President Donald Trump. He was speaking at the 50th World Economic Forum, which is underway in the Swiss city of Davos. 
A group of African heads of state are meeting in a summit ahead of the UK's departure from the European Union aimed at boosting private investment in Africa using the aid budget to encourage investment from the City of London. The government says six and a half billion pounds of commercial deals have already been signed by British companies focused on green technology, energy and increasing access to the internet. With more expected to follow. Audrey Brown spoke to the BBC's senior Africa correspondent, Anne Soy, and started off by asking her if this gathering will benefit the African continent. I don't think it is an, another talking shop. I don't think anybody will be describing it as such because, as you mentioned, um, there, there are questions being asked whether the UK is late to the party. But is it really? When you look at the, the history, uh, the UK has a long history on the continent. It already has very strong uh, partnerships going way back in many African countries, particularly the Anglophone countries. This meeting marks um, a shift in their focus. So for for a long time they have been focusing on aid, particularly the Department for International Aid has been giving aid to support programs in health and education, but now they are saying they're going to use some of that money to support women in business, to support green energy, to support dig- digital technology. So startups within the continent that are going to make a difference in the lives of people. They're also bringing on board the private sector, which is already on the ground in Africa, in many African countries, and you know, with some of them have been announcing that they're increasing their investment. GSK, for instance, in East Africa uh, is increasing its investment there. Um, there, there are more than 11 uh, shopping centers that will be opened in Egypt. Those deals have already been signed. So it is the private sector as, as well as government you, using a different strategy now in Africa. So what's been happening today and what have you been hearing from some of the continent's presidents who are present? Well, today the British government has been uh, making its pitch to African leaders. Um, Boris Johnson uh, told the leaders he's hosting here that uh, he, he, he acknowledges that Africa has many suitors, but uh, the UK wants to distinguish itself as you know, a country that comes not just with money, it comes with values as well. And so that has been his speech and that has been received very well. Africa is saying it is open for business. It's interesting when you talk about it's interesting when you talk about a pitch and showing that it's a suitor. You know, what have they got to offer? You know, why are they why would they be seen as very attractive? Well, Africa is very attractive to the rest of the world because this uh, this is a continent that has the youngest population in the world. It is a fast-growing continent in terms of population. What that means is that in a couple of decades, in three decades, a quarter of consumers globally will be living in Africa. That's a huge market for anyone who, who, who is doing business. And so they will be looking there uh, to grow their businesses. Um, at the same time, the economies are growing. That means people will have, um, hopefully it translates to people having more money. And that was the BBC's senior Africa correspondent, Anne Soy, speaking to her colleague, Audrey Brown. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Doctors in the DRC public hospitals are on strike since Monday to demand a salary increases and protest against tax deductions from their social allowance. As Jean-Noel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa, hospitals are working under reduced service as doctors are waiting for talks with the government and their claims to be taken into consideration. The strike underway since Monday here in the Democratic Republic of Congo was called by the National Union of the DRC Doctors, well known as Sinamed. 
The strike has entered its second day this Tuesday as the public hospitals doctors are demanding the country's government to increase their salaries and to stop deducting tax from their risk bonuses and social allowance. Instead, the doctors want the tax to be deducted from their salaries, although they are not satisfied by the salaries they get and once they are hit by a 15% tax pay, this becomes a serious shortage. Dr. John Senka is the executive secretary of the National Union of the Democratic Republic of Congo's doctors, Sinamed. CINAMED is prepared to pay tax calculated from the salaries and not from the social allowances such as transport and house allowance. We have visited some of the public hospitals here in Kinshasa and what we have realized is that doctors are in hospitals working but not as usual since they have organized the minimum or reduced the service. Only the emergency cases and patients already under treatment are taken care of and no new patients are being seen by the doctors unless this is an emergency case. What's true is that it's indeed the doctor who needs to confirm a new case is an emergency or not. The situation remains then complicated and the strike has to go on until the government and the doctor's union can reach an agreement on the two main issues and some others. Meanwhile, nurses are threatening to go on a strike as well since they need also the government to look into their situation and improve their social conditions. According to this nurse who's the head of the emergency service at the Kinkole Main Hospital in the east of the DRC capital city Kinshasa, the nurse is close to the doctor and both of them should be well dealt with. Jean Chipamba. When thinking about doctors, they have to think about nurses as well. We are close colleagues of doctors. In the coming days, there will be a day without nurses that will be planned. The doctor's strike has plunged the patients into fear and serious panic as they wonder what should happen if they find themselves in serious situation. Those who have spoken to Channel Africa have expressed their disappointment and called on both the government and doctors to quickly reach an agreement for more humanism. One of the patients has spoken under anonymous. I have come and at the entrance they tell me doctors are on strike. We call upon the government to be conscient and the doctors to remember they work by vocation. The Minister of Health has described the doctors' strike as a surprise since both the government and the doctors were still waiting for talks scheduled to start this Tuesday but doctors made their decision to strike. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. African governments have agreed to criminalize falsified drugs. Heads of state at seven African countries met in Lome, Togo to sign the Lome Initiative, a political declaration to tackle fake medicine distribution on the continent. The governments of Congo, Gambia, Ghana, Niger, Uganda, Senegal and Togo with the support of the Brazzaville Foundation, a UK-based charity organization, have agreed to work on the establishment of a regulatory framework that will criminalize the trafficking uh, of substandard and falsified medicines in Africa. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by David Richmond, the Chief Executive Officer of the Brazzaville Foundation, and is joining us from uh, London. Uh, David, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, what are the driving forces behind substandard and falsified drugs? And if you could talk to us about the significance of the Lome Initiative signed over the weekend. Uh, yes, the, the initiative, I think, is, a, is, is potentially an extremely uh, important initiative uh, because it has the involvement of the heads of state of a number of African countries. They are committing themselves personally uh, to take forward this initiative. And because it is a specifically African initiative, substandard and falsified medicines is, of course, a global problem. Uh, but it is most acute 
uh, on the African continent. So I think it's very important that African countries should be seen to be taking the lead in trying to uh, counter this scourge. Now, fake medicine can often be indistinguishable from the real products with the packaging is good, if not better than the original sometimes. Why would you say it has been so difficult to fight this problem? I I think there are many, many uh, different aspects uh, to this problem. But I think uh, in Africa, there are problems uh, to do with uh, having the proper legislation, which is what the Lomi Initiative is all about. It's to put in place legislation specifically targeted uh, at uh, criminalizing the traffic in uh, falsified medicines. Uh, But we've always been clear that this is only the first part of a much larger program to ensure access to safe, effective and affordable medicines for uh, all the citizens of Africa. And legislation in itself is important, but there are a range of other issues that will need to be discussed, such as proper regulation, uh, the supply of good uh, locally produced um, pharmaceutical products. And uh, are porous borders also to blame for the fake drug distribution? This, I think this is a problem for, for many African countries, particularly some of those who have, been, who have signed up uh, to this initiative uh, in Lome uh, over, over the weekend. Um, there is uh, increasing evidence that the porousness of their borders is a source of serious, um, of serious public security issue for these countries because uh, a whole range of uh, problems, uh, narcotics, uh, weapons, human trafficking and trafficking in fake medicines um, is uh, promoted uh, by the uh, absence of uh, proper border controls. Now, India and China, where most legal pharmaceutical products are produced, have often been cited as the major sources of counterfeit products, uh, as well while Nigeria is said to be the key entry port for Africa. Do you agree with this assessment? Uh, It is undoubtedly true that uh, Africa is very dependent on imports. I think the average is something like 70% of all medicines uh, sold in Africa have to be imported from outside. Of course, this figure varies from country to country. I suspect in Africa, the figure is rather, in South Africa, the figure is rather lower. But in many African countries, it's 70% or in some cases, nearly 100%. And it is true uh, that most of the medicines imported to, into Africa come from China and India. Some of these, many of these, are undoubtedly legitimate and genuine, but undoubtedly some of them uh, are, are substandard or indeed completely fake. And uh, do we know how many people may have died as a result of counterfeit drugs in Africa? Uh, it is, I think, extremely difficult to put an accurate figure on it. All I have ever seen is estimates. But one figure which is particularly striking is 120,000 children dying each year because of substandard or falsified anti-malarials. And you can see that if you cover uh, other age groups and other uh, diseases, the problem will almost certainly run into hundreds of thousands of victims every single year. Plus, of course, all those people who might not actually die, but are not cured uh, of, uh, of the uh, diseases for which they've been taking the substandard or falsified medicines. And the emergence of the Internet as a sales platform has brought another dimension to the problem. What role will the Brazzaville Foundation play in terms of identifying the gaps? Well, we, uh, you know, there's a limit to what any one single organization uh, can do, and we are focusing at the moment on this LOME initiative and on ensuring that African countries have the right legislative framework uh, for dealing with um, substandard and falsified uh, medicines. Uh, the Internet, you are quite right, is a, is a huge and new complication, um, but it's not, a, not an issue on which we probably have sufficient expertise to tackle. All right, David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. All right, and that was David Richmond, Chief Executive of the Brazzaville Foundation, on the line from London. Very big thank you to him for joining us yet again.
Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. The political landscape of Nigeria witnessed spontaneous protests at different states over the January 14th verdict of the country's Supreme Court, which ordered the removal of a governor for another base uh, based on its understanding of the technicalities of the Imo state governorship election in which the opposition People's Democratic Party was declared the winner over the ruling party. The reversal now has the hope Uzodima uh, the candidate of the ruling All Progressive Congress Party brought to power against Emeka Ihedioha, who was declared winner by the Independent National Electoral Commission, which conducted the election. Channel Africa News' correspondent in Lagos, Collins Nosato Hengbe, reports that the judgment is uh, seen by the opposition as a planned process to reduce the number of states won by the barest minimum using the purchased judiciary. Soon after the verdict of the seven-man panel was released, the national chairman of the opposition and the ruling parties took a swipe at each other with their claims. Uche seconders of the People's Democratic Party says there is a connivance between the presidency and the judiciary. The National Working Committee has credible intelligence that the presidency and APC leadership are still untwisting the judiciary to ensure they deliver to them four PDP-1 states of Sokoto, Benwen, Bauchi, Adamawa, while keeping states like Kano clearly won by us for themselves. We know that the APC and President Buhari have taken our civility for weakness and inability to act. The presidency has even abandoned governance amidst mirrors of challenges in our land and prefer to be joining issues with us as main opposition party. A deliberate policy to divert attention from the inept leadership of the current government. And from his corner, the chairman of the ruling All Progressive Congress, Adam Soshomole, says the opposition has a history of electoral wrongs. Hope Udima is not only the highest vote scorer he had the required spread necessary to be declared the winner of that election, and the Supreme Court has so upheld. We commend the courage of the Supreme Court for PDP and seconders to call for the resignation of the Chief Justice of Nigeria because they have lost a state that was never there, that they never won, is the height of recklessness. It is a fact that PDP is a beneficiary of electoral fraud year in, year out, and over time it became part of their sing song that rigged them out and let them go to court. Current electoral act as it is was crafted by PDP government because they had the instrument of rigging and they made it such a law that it is almost impossible for anyone who has been rigged out to seek redress from law court. Making his case clearer to Nigerians at the rally held in Abuja, Nigeria's capital, Uche Sekondo says the intention of the opposition is to have the verdict reviewed and reversed. All we are seeking today is for our Jewish to review this error because the figures are not adding up. Yes, sir. We therefore call on the leadership of the judiciary at that highest level to please, by the grace of God, God is the highest, review, revisit and reverse the Imo State judgment. Because we believe that the figures are not adding up. In all the places where the people staged peaceful demonstrations, the call was that the judgment be reviewed to reflect the people's desire. Chieftains of the opposition party, as well as vice presidential candidate of the PDP in last year's election, spoke. All the facts 
of the law, all the facts of, of the computation of the votes tendered by INEC goes against the grain of the judgment they have delivered. Yeah. We are begging, we are appealing, we are appealing to the federal government of this country to let justice prevail. What happened in Imo State is enough to kill our democracy. I appeal to APC, please do not kill this democracy. We have no other country. This is about the country our children will live in. Speaking in Oweri, the Imo State capital, on assumption of office, the man in whose favor the court made pronouncements, Hope Uzodima of the APC, says his priority is not to institute any probe but to govern Imo State. When I asked for this uh, status report from all the ministers, many people misunderstood it that the purpose for calling for that information is because I want to probe. I never said I'm going to probe anybody. But the business of governance also involves probing if need be. For me to start the work, I need to know what is on ground. And in the course of doing our business, if there are things that will require investigation, we we'll subject them to investigation. My business here is to govern the people. Let nobody begin to speak for me. A political analyst, Dr. Mukhtar Iman, says though the verdict looked ambiguous, morality was not the tone because of the prevailing circumstances. In the case of Imo State, what was obvious was that the apex court ruled that the cancellation of votes in the polling units that um, elections were cancelled was um, null and void, and on that basis, um, votes were returned. And so when you look at that judgment, it looks sort of ambiguous. It might look like uh, these elections have been hijacked, given that the number four person has all of a sudden uh, been um, declared the winner of the election. We should understand that the politics of morality um, is quite slippery. This is not a climb where moral politics is played in accordance with what the dictate of morality should be. It is not over the say until it's over. But in the case of the Imo state in southeast of Nigeria, the result of the February 23, 2019 governorship elections may have been declared, but the bandwagon effect continues in the court where the aggrieved party began a process of reversing the declared outcome. Though the expectations have been met, it has generated another wildfire protest by members and sympathizers of the opposition's People's Democratic Party who have now taken to the streets to protest and demand a review of the judgment by the Nigeria's apex court. Will this request gain the required attention? The odds are high. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengwe for Channel Africa News. 17.32 Central African Time, here's Jwalani Tullo with your latest news headlines. SABC News independent and impartial from an african perspective thank you samora making headlines the trial of seven cameroonian soldiers accused of participating in the killing of two women and two children has reportedly begun behind closed doors a senior u.s state department official has warned against potential destabilization in the central african republic ahead of presidential elections scheduled for december and finally russian airports have stepped up screening of travelers arriving from china to try to identify people infected with the new coronavirus for channel africa i'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Colton Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. 
Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Former Democratic Alliance leader Musi Maimani is officially making his way back into politics. Maimani resigned as the leader of the main opposition party in October last year. He'll be launching his new party called The Movement in the next two months. Maimani elaborates. Well, I've been embarked in a very exciting journey. You know, when I left the DA, it wasn't just a question of the DA. It was a question of the institutional body of politics. I left there believing more than anything that South Africans are feeling distant from their political principles. And therefore I felt that South Africans were disengaged in politics. 18 million citizens never voted. And I went away. I said to myself, for the targeted view, I want to engage society. I want to engage business. I want to engage other political parties. I want to engage different sectors of society. That we can coalesce around this movement, a movement that is non-racial, a movement that is focused on the future, a movement that says actually South Africans are wanting to take their power back. And therefore, I've spent a significant amount of time coalescing around that. And that's why I'm quite excited about the journey forward, because suddenly we're going to wake up uh, over the next couple of weeks speaking to South Africans about how they can take their power back, how they can be active citizens, and then let's build a movement for change. As you rightly say, uh, South Africans, uh, by all indications, seem to be distant and seem to be uh, quite apathetic when it comes to politics and politicians in general. Correct. So how are you going to differentiate uh, your movement, this new political party, from what already exists? How are you going to position yourself such that we uh, are not stuck with a Musi Maimane that is a deconstructed version of the leader former sure. leader of the Democratic Alliance. Well, well first and foremost, let me distinguish. I, I think let's, let, let's talk really about a movement for change on a couple of aspects. The first is we've got to change our electoral system to make sure citizens can actually elect the people who represent them. At this current point in time, every South African goes to express their view to a party. But if I was speaking to the person in Kotopsi or wherever, in whatever community, uh, whether it's in Lusikisiki, many of them don't even know who their MP is. Their issues are not represented in Parliament. And I'm saying that's the first thing. The second thing is we're going to be digital in the sense that we're going to introduce technology that allows for people to actually hold those public representatives to accountable. Thirdly, and I think most crucially, is that because this is not focused, it's focused on creating a central platform around a pact, around an agreement to say we agree on the following things, let us build a movement akin to the UDF that says to us, let us focus on the future of all citizens. So and I want to say up front here that the mistake we could make is to simply reduce it to say, no, it's just Muslim, my money or this. Let us broaden it. Let us bring business. Let us bring civil society. Let us bring NGOs. Let's bring churches. Let's bring citizens across and let's build a movement. Adding another party simply to the list of the many that exist is not the solution for this country at this point in time. We need citizens to actually hold back power and distinctively to be able to say we are the ones in charge. What we've seen in the last 25 years is a surrendering to say let parliament do the job, let those who elect, let parties do their own thing. And quite frankly, I am sick of that. And I think citizens at home are sick of it because at the end of the day we almost ceremonially vote every five years and then we wake up tomorrow to decisions that are taken without our own consultation. It is time for change but change isn't just bringing one more party, it is equally so changing the system, changing the way we operate as a country and increasing the level of activism. Mm. Well talk is cheap. How exactly do you go about changing the system mm. starting tomorrow? 
Well, what are you going to do? The first and most crucial is that when we talk about electoral reform, I've asked South Africans to engage us. We're going to be registering. And ultimately, I want to, uh, we'll be following, obviously, the Constitutional Court uh, ruling on this particular matter. And we want to activate citizens to say, let's go fight for this reform. Secondly, let us be practical. Let us go into our communities. One of the projects I've started to be engaged with is about making sure that there's an afternoon uh, study program for, for learners so that in the afternoon we can improve our maths and science. We are not going to prepare our young people for the future until ultimately we're talking about uh, an improvement in maths and science. And I'm calling upon citizens, business, communities, say, get involved in your community. Thirdly, let's be clear about saying, let's get to know our public reps. Let's get to engage them. Before we can go and say these people who are going to vote for them next year, let's get onto the business of selecting community leaders, making sure these are people who are in our interests. So that's the immediate thing. We've got to take back our country. It's politics unusual. And as long as we're sitting and, and, and watching what is happening in the political space and failing to actually go in our communities, engage people, I think we'll simply just be spectators to a democracy that we are participants of once in every five years. So I'm saying let's be active now. Let's go make changes in our communities. And I'll be meeting people. And South Africans have responded positively. They've come back to me and said to us, this is what we're going to be doing. This is what we're going to be doing in the Eastern Cape to help, to, to contribute. So that ultimately this movement of South Africans begins to tell the message to politicians, we're in charge, not you. And that is South African politician Musi Maimani talking to Sakina Kamwendo. 2020 marks the beginning of the UN's Decade of Action, a final push to hit the goals of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and also the 75th anniversary of the organization. In an interview with Connor Lennon from the UN News's, uh, from UN News's Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General, outlined the many reasons to be positive about the impact the agenda is having on people's lives and the momentum that is growing around the world. Ms. Mohammed accepted, however, that progress towards reaching the Sustainable Development Goals has not been as fast as hoped. I think that when we were designing the SDGs and we gaveled the ambition of them in September 2015, we thought we would hit the ground running and start implementing. So I think expectations have not been met. But I think what we have done is that we've engaged the world and we know that these goals are very much owned by everyone. Um, so we see a lot of activity socializing the goals and what they mean. And now the lift is to how we can implement them. So in terms of engagement, absolutely. Um, we haven't met the expectations of implementation. This is almost five years in. And this year we had the SDG summit, the first ever SDG summit. Lots of initiatives came out of that and you officially launched the Decade of Action, but how would you characterize the mood from the stakeholders that you spoke to? I think it's very, they're all very excited about us finding ways um, to re-engage and reimagine how we can get this ambition done in people's lives. Um, so I, I really did see that, you know, we were providing an opportunity, 10 years um, and let's get the work done. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's really accelerate and get to scale the actions that we need to take, whether they are investments or the numbers of people that will get into school. Uh, the skills that will be acquired. Um, girls, for instance, coding um, as you bring technology into people's lives, number of women in boards um, so that parity becomes a reality. Having to find the hook in each goal and say, let's go after that and each year follow up. What are we doing in each constituency um, and in each country and region to make that very real? And can you think of any specific examples? You mentioned girls coding, for example, but some more examples on the ground where this is going to make a substantial difference to people's real lives? I think if we follow the money to ensure that governments are putting investments in health services and so you see how many people are literally getting access clinic by clinic, village by village, uh, how many community health care workers have been increased to get people's medicines to them to ensure that they are taking care of the prenatal care for a woman so she gets to hospital 
in time to deliver safely. Um, or as I said, with girls coding, put a number on it. How many millions do we want automatically improves an education system and opens up the possibilities of connecting technology um, with education girls and boys alike. Um, I think there are opportunities for the full value chain in agriculture, for instance, that you bring younger people into it because technology, the way you would use drones, um, not backbreaking uh, to, to sow a field, but you've got these young, um, what do they call them now, agro-techies uh, who are now engaged. I think that that's something that we would follow to see, are we opening up those opportunities for entrepreneurship? Are we putting investments behind that? Um, start putting numbers of them in countries. Jobs come into to, to the market. Um, are they being taken up? For every investment that we make in infrastructure, transitions, for instance, on power, um, moving for fossil fuels to sustainable energy, what does that mean in terms of jobs for young people, not just access to power? Uh, does it create the environment for a better chance at succeeding with entrepreneurship because you have power, not just access in your home? Uh, so I think you can pick something up in every goal from hunger all the way through to the partnerships. In your role, you travel frequently. You get to have a, a bigger picture of what's happening around the world. What are some of the most inspiring things that you've seen recently? Uh, some of the most inspiring, when I landed in Eritrea, a place where people didn't see very much hope after uh, decades of, um, of the conflict that has happened there, this new rapprochement, and going out into the countryside to see a woman and her son and family um, who were involved in, in dairy farming um, and had started this 10 years ago and suddenly coming to fruition because the borders opened were business opportunities in Sudan and in the UAE. And that is Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, speaking to Connor Lennon from UN News. But right now it's time for us to cross on over to Tracy Boomgaard for your latest economics news. Thank you, Samora. The United Kingdom has announced a $165 million commitment for African countries. This was disclosed at the UK-Africa Investment Summit on Monday. The summit laid the foundation for new partnerships between the UK and Africa based on trade, investment, shared values and mutual interest. In addition to this commitment, the UK also declared funding for the expansion of the SHE Trades Program in Nigeria, Ghana and Kenya. Funding has been set aside to deliver a new digital access program in Nigeria, Kenya and South Africa. The UK says it will expand the Manufacturing Africa program, which aims to generate hundreds of millions of new foreign direct investment in manufacturing into West Africa. The International Monetary Fund has affirmed its forecast that Nigeria's economy will grow by 2.5% in 2020, the IMF in the January 2020 World Economic Outlook downgraded its growth forecast for sub-Saharan African region to 3.5%, citing constraints and deteriorating public finance in South Africa. It also downgraded its growth forecast for the global economy from 3.4% to 3.3%. South African Airways says its decision to cancel some of its local and international flights is aimed at saving cash and optimizing the airline's position ahead of further capital injection. The struggling national carrier is expecting a bailout from National Treasury before the end of this week. The government promised SAA the cash injection when the airline was placed under voluntary business rescue last month. There are concerns that government may not be able to provide the funding to get the airline back on its feet and lead to South African Airways failing to pay salaries. Meanwhile, South Africa's Nuclear Energy Corporation, or NEXA, may not be able to pay salaries at the end of this month due to the company's financial woes. The country's Minerals and Energy Minister, Gwede Mantashi, appointed a new board last week after the old board resigned a week ago. Former Chief Nuclear Officer at Eskom, David Nichols, has been appointed as chairperson of the new board. Nexa employees were reportedly told at a meeting by CEO Ayanda Maloy that the company will not be able to pay salaries. 
This was mainly because of the operational and financial challenges the company is facing. Nichols now has a huge task of ensuring that the new board brings stability into the company and improves its governance. The previous board wrote a letter to Mantashi blaming him for his lack of support. They claim that Nexa has been technically insolvent since 2014. Nexa has been dipping into funds meant for rehabilitation of the nuclear reactor to meet its liabilities. South Africa's parliament's published a notice informing the national legislature of the bills that have been assented and signed into law by President Cyril Ramaphosa on the 13th of January. These include the Adjustments Appropriation Bill, which will effect adjustments on how money is to be allocated from the National Revenue Fund that will be used during this current fiscal year. This will enable Treasury to disperse around $110 billion worth of funds to some of the state-owned enterprises in desperate need of cash. Other bills signed into law were the Division of Revenue Bill and the Taxation Laws Amendment Bill. A woman in Harare has developed a hydroponic farm in her backyard to grow vegetables, this in a bid to defy drought and an economic crisis that have left millions in need of food aid. The 50-year-old mother of two says she's always had a passion for farming, but no land on which to plant. After some research two years ago, she began importing a small hydroponic system from South Africa that enables plants to draw soluble nutrients from water. She has now turned her pastime to a profitable venture by selling her freshly grown vegetables and makes at least $1,000 a month. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.90 Nigerian Naira, 10.61 Botswana Pula, at 99.97 Kenyan Shilling and at 14.59 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.17 Brazilian Hale, 61.54 Russian Ruble, 70.95 Indian Rupee, 6.86 Chinese Wang and at 14.48 South African Rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,557 and platinum at $1,006 per ounce. Brent crude oil is at $64.50 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. Now it's time for your sport. Here's Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with cricket news. Proteus first bowler Kahiso Rabada has confessed that being banned by the International Cricket Council, ICC, for the Wanderers Test match has been hurting but has vowed to stop letting himself and his team down in the future. This is the former South Africa Under-19 Cricket World Cup winner, Rabada's second ban for the exact same offence, dating back to a couple of seasons ago against Australia during the Sandpaper Gate series. Rabada says he will use the ban wisely and rest as well. Um, I mean, that's something that I didn't expect. Whether it was uh, the right thing to ban me or the wrong thing, the reality is that I am banned. But I have belief in uh, anyone who's going to come into my spot. Uh, I have belief that they, they have the potential to, to knock anyone over. That's why they are picked for South Africa, and it's a special thing to get picked for the Proteus. I think, um, yeah, obviously it hurts, but I guess it gives me a, a chance to, to, to work on my game and it gives me a chance to, to have a bit of a rest. Yeah, I mean, it can't keep happening because you know, I'm letting the team down and I'm letting myself down. So it just can't keep happening. Um, that's why it hurts so much. So yes, I feel as if I am letting the team down and myself. 
The ban also means that Rabada, who has taken 197 wickets for the Proteus in just 43 tests at an average of 22.98, will miss out on an opportunity to reach the magical 200-test wickets milestone in his home ground in front of his home fans. Rabada says he believes it's time for him to outgrow his raw talent and take his test cricket game to another level. I feel as if I'd like to be more consistent in my action, more consistent, and, and if I am more consistent in my action, it's going to, it's going to bring a more consistent output in terms of my delivery and more quality as well. And now is the time really where I need to put behind my, my rawness. Um, I mean, it's time now to really try and clock my game and know my game really, really well. I think I'm going through that phase at the moment and it's a challenge, uh, it's never easy but it's something that I have recognised is to have that consistency and then from there that's where I can read the game even, even better. In tennis news, Coco Gauff has shown on her Australian Open debut as she shocked Venus Williams out of the first round in a repeat of a stunning victory over the seven-times Grand Slam champion in the Wimbledon Opener last year. The 15-year-old American sensation, 24 years Williams Jr., is to a 7-6-6-3 win in the clash of generations at Margaret Court Arena, Gauff's first main draw appearance as a direct qualifier at a Grand Slam. Thank you guys so much. I mean, you guys were chanting my name, and I only thought that would happen at U.S. Open, so for you guys to do that here in Australia means a lot to me. Kavuf will face Romania and Sorana Kiristia, who earlier beat Babora Strykova 6-2-7-6 for a place in the third round. Seven times Australian Open champion Serena Williams booked in Omina's form as she opened her 19th campaign at Melbourne Park with a 6-0-6-3 trouncing off Anastasia Potapova. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and ETO Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. But for now, from myself, Samora Magesi, producer Ronald Piri, technical producer Tumelo Mukwena and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. Should you have any comments on the show, send us an email to info at channelafrica.ca.za plus 27763003327 is where you can WhatsApp us and tweet us on at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Sona Jobarte with a song called Gambia.
Murandire moni wandema inunonse amene mwakarandi mpata omvera ku wireless ira.